the body's response to trauma is brilliant. It saves the organism. It's protective and it's brilliant. Yoga is so powerful because it brings together the mind, the body, and the connection between both the breathing into presence. Shows us that we can stay in difficult situations, that we can use our breathing or our soft gaze point or focus on the body to ride the wave of sensation and emotion. We start to notice other waves and they pass. And that's a great embodied learning for trauma survivor. You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to this series of episodes with authors of recently published yoga books. Writing a book is a huge undertaking and definitely a labor of love. I have so much respect and appreciation for the authors featured in this series. The topics covered are wide-ranging and diverse, including self-inquiry, resilience, trauma, teaching skills, tantra, parenting, inversions, meditation, and business. If you love books as much as I do, you'll enjoy a peek behind the scenes on why these yoga teachers felt called to write on their specific topic. And I hope you'll feel inspired to choose a few of them to add to your yoga library. This first interview is with Lara Land, author of My Bliss Book and The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga. Lara is also the host of the Beyond Trauma podcast, executive director of Three and a Half Acres Yoga, and co-producer of SoulFest Yoga Festival. Let's jump into this conversation with Lara Land. I'd love to start with a little bit of your background of how you discovered yoga and why you decided to start teaching. Okay. Well, I discovered yoga in high school, my senior year of high school, but I got really into it at university. I was studying theater and we used to use yoga to clear the channel so that we could kind of be a blank canvas and take on the responses of, you know, a different individual, the character that we were stepping into. So from that perspective, it really showed me that we have these habitual reactions that live in our bodies and that by uh, doing this practice, we could kind of clear those out and it opens up a lot of choice and opportunity for who we want to be, what what we want to, um, how we want to respond in each moment. So I just thought that was like a superpower, and that quickly became my focus. When did you start teaching, and what drew you into that role? Shortly after school, I moved to New York City and continued my practice, and got very serious about practicing. Was practicing five, six days a week. And then decided to get a yoga teacher training. And I did that there in New York. But I also at the same time started traveling to India and studying with my teacher there. Um, So it all just kind of snowballed pretty quickly. When did you become interested in trauma and recognize the importance of understanding trauma for yoga? I was invited early on. I was in India on one of my my long stays there. And I was invited to go to Rwanda as part of a pilot program to work with genocide survivors. 
survivors there. So folks that had really been through some serious trauma. And yeah, that was my first real um, experience, you know, in the field, working with a population that had been through trauma. And I saw the benefits of yoga. I saw it happening in real time, how powerful it was. And I also learned a lot about, you know, sort of what I had been taught that worked and what maybe didn't work so well and how we might modify some of the approaches and adapt them to, you know, this, we weren't in a yoga studio, we were in blazing sun, we were dealing with different kinds of conditions. So just being really in the moment and responsive to what the needs are instead of trying to push a system that I had been taught. And that was a big eye-opener and learning experience for me. And after that, I went back to India. I actually did some work there uh, with HIV-positive children that were in waiting rooms that had actually walked for sometimes days to come to, to get treatment. And again, learned so much from my students. They really told me what they needed and being responsive to that. I was, I was really learning in the field. Uh, and, and I was also learning about NGOs and nonprofit work and, and the importance of sustainability. You know, there's a lot of abandonment that happens. People have trauma and then the caregivers tend to burn out move. There's, it just happens a lot. Or there are a lot of foreign aid that comes and goes. And this can be really harmful, can re-traumatize. So I knew that when I got back to being in New York, that I wanted to create something that was really sustainable, be in the community where I was giving my offerings so that I really knew the people that I was sharing in the practice with and could be very responsive to their needs. So it sounds like you were doing a lot of learning from the yoga and from your students. That's exactly right. Yeah, I learned a lot in the field. And then, then I went on to, you know, take more trainings um, in trauma sensitivity, trauma sensitive mindfulness, and also got more educated in social justice issues and did a lot of, you know, trainings and summits but it was a, a lot was in the field first getting thrown in and making my mistakes in real time. Well, you know, it's so important because even if you do have formal training, it doesn't land in the same way if you don't also have experience and, and you just you do have to make mistakes, you know, and those mistakes, it just lands so deeply <laughs> when you mess up and you're like, oh, my God, how could I have done that? I mean, that is what like really brings, I think, the lessons alive. I totally agree. And, you know, now I offer a trauma-sensitive yoga teacher training through my nonprofit. And what we do is part of to graduate from that, you have to observe a teacher teaching and then trial teach or teach, co-teach with them so that you get that, you know, in the field experience. And then for folks who want to, we actually have longer term mentoring, uh, where you can work under a teacher who's a little more seasoned. And I think that's just a great way to learn. I know in other fields, apprenticeships are coming back. And I just think it's wonderful. So your first chapter of your book is all about the definition of trauma. And I know you can't recreate an entire chapter, but if you could give me the crib notes of the chapter a primer on the definition of trauma, I think that would be really helpful. 
Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about, I was just doing a little post on defining terms and I, I was putting into my mind that that's really a part of my book is talking about how important it is to define our terms because what we do, the actions that we take are re- often related to how we think about these terms. And trauma, I know people get a lot of images when they hear that word, you know, and sometimes those can limit how we see the pain and suffering in this world and in ourselves. So, you know, I think it's natural. We think of trauma, we think of uh, these single time incidences. And of course, those can create trauma like an accident, an illness, a medical situation, an attack, a big weather or environmental situation. Those are kind of the ones that, you know, usually come to mind for people. But there are many other instances that can create uh, a trauma response. Absence is one that's often forgotten, right? Like not having our needs met, especially when we're young, especially as children. So humans need certain things. Obviously we need food and water, but we need also connection. We need some attachment figure, someone that we can trust, eye contact, touch. So There's a lot of loneliness out there that can also create trauma. And there's ongoing abuse. There's oppression. Oppression can create trauma. Not being able to live authentically, not feeling that one would be accepted. And then there's secondary trauma. A lot of us are experiencing this. This is also an area that I'm thinking about a lot lately um, because we're scrolling and we're seeing you know, videos, sometimes they know they have that warning and sometimes they don't, or we can't look away and we're just exposed to um, hearing about and seeing trauma and that creates vicarious trauma. And there's just many different things, religious trauma and so forth. Now, two people can have the same incident happen to them and one can have a trauma response and one doesn't. So, These are what I'm explaining now are more the different kinds of incidences that you could start to think about that might create trauma. And then you need to think about, you know, the person. If a person has access to resources, to someone they can share what happened, to yoga, to talk therapy and so forth, they may not be traumatized, right? They might have a way to release the traumatic experience from their system and they might go on just fine where someone else could have a longer term experience. So you use the term trauma response. How does one know that one is having a trauma response? What does that mean? Yeah, good question. So there's certain signs and you know there're very there's some very strict definitions for something to be diagnosed as PTSD. But uh, I think a more of trauma response or stress-related trauma that's a broader category that many of us unfortunately fall into. I think some of the, you know, the key signs are hypervigilance. So kind of edginess, jumping, you hear a sound, you, you think you see something all the time. So just being really on high alert there, which also can impact sleep. And there's also the uh, the opposite side, hypovigilance, where, you know, just to relate this to what I was saying about secondary trauma, where you know, it's so much. You hear about it so much. You see it so much that you you zone out. You kind of uh, dissociate. You don't feel anymore. And for people that really swing to that side of the spectrum, that can lead to taking a lot of risky behavior because you 
we we want to feel so we might or and also because you don't feel connected to yourself in a way that you would care um, or feel even that it's you. Um, there's a you know depending on the level of dissociation. So all these responses have other impacts. You know you might notice that you're irritable. You know for no reason. Um, more sensitive. Some people have a real shift in their boundaries. Either they their boundaries become very rigid or a real loosening of boundaries. So they're they're and it could go back and forth. Sometimes there's avoidance, right? Avoidance of an area that might bring that memory up, avoidance of people, even you know, folks that we're close to or we love, because there's often a lot of shame around the body's response to trauma. The body's response to trauma is brilliant. It saves the organism. It's protective and it's brilliant. And whatever it did was necessary to get through that that traumatic instance. So it's the thing or things that happen to the person that are that are unfair and incorrect and harmful. But the response from the body is absolutely brilliant. And we the first step really in softening the impacts of trauma is honoring the body's response. And how does yoga help specifically? What have you found about the practice of yoga? that makes the most impact on people who are working with trauma? So I think yoga is so powerful because it brings together the mind, the body, and the connection between both the breathing into presence. And normally, you know, the present moment is the safe one. And it's the past or anxiety about the future that brings stress or can bring back the trauma response or escalate the stress. So when we can bring ourselves into the present moment, and it's not always safe for everyone, but it can often feel like a safe respite. Yoga does that. Parts of the practice, such as grounding and feeling our feet on the ground, feeling our body in the, in the space, proprioception can help the nervous system to relax and to realize that it's safe. And yoga does all these other great things too. I mean, it shows us that we can stay in difficult situations, that we can use our breathing or our soft gaze point or our focus on the body to maybe ride the wave of a thought telling us that it's dangerous or to go or to ride the wave of sensation and emotion. We start to notice in posture how they're waves and they pass. And that's a great embodied learning for trauma survivor. In your book, you talk about three facets of safety, the physical, the emotional, and the psychological. And I'd love for you to address that a little bit. And I'm especially curious about the difference between emotional safety and psychological safety. The main reason that I break down the different kinds of safety is that you can set up the room and yourself and train yourself. Take every training, right? And make the room so safe and your language is safe and your whole body is showing safety. But you can never promise a fully safe experience because we just don't know what could trigger another person, right? You might just like look like or move like or remind someone of a past history and or someone else in the room might and that could trigger them. And so I think it's a it's a balance of owning what we can do and caring enough to do our best, knowing that we can never promise full safety. So there's both the the setup of the the outer space, and then there's the practice inside for the individual 
of recognizing that they're safe. Just like in the world, like everything could be safe on the outside, but if I don't feel that way on the inside, then I'm still experiencing that things aren't safe. And ideally, we want that lined up. We don't want to be so relaxed and open. And, and I think some people do make this mistake sometime, right? That they they think that yoga is about that, that we have to be so one way that we don't recognize when something isn't safe. And I would argue that we want to have a really um, accurate and alive, relaxed, but responsive nervous system that's feeding us really good signals. I think that's something that yoga can do, but sometimes those two things, the inner and the outer, are um, out of alignment. So it sounds like one of the things that yoga can help us do is get better at judging the actual safety of a situation and honing our capacity to relate to the world more as it is versus our stories about it or our immediate reactions to it. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, it does that in so so many ways. And through our what's coming up for me is through our biases as well. You know, it really helps us to look at that, to look at our programming, to notice, like I always jump or do this when this type of person walks in the room or when I'm confronted with this symbol. This is trauma as well. You know, that we didn't talk about when we were defining it. It's like generational trauma. And our families pass down ways of being, which can be limiting, which are based on their experiences. I mean, most of us, if we go back some generations, you know, have ancestors that went through war or poverty and the the ways that they survived, which they needed, are passed down even though the threats are no longer here. And that creates limitations and it closes us off. I think Emotional safety and psychological safety are slightly different. Emotional safety can be that I am in a safe place, safe place to explore my emotions. And that's something that's very valuable that's in the yoga room. And we can, as teachers, normalize um, that all emotions are normal and welcome and can happen. And we also don't want to put too much on them where Someone feels like they have to cry every class or they didn't go deep enough. Sometimes students don't feel anything in the space, but that freedom for all motions to be. And actually part of that as a teacher is not really rewarding or oversympathizing, but being that safe space that people can bounce their emotions, even their their anger, whatever comes comes out in the in the yoga room. And I think psychological safety refers more to our not being manipulated, you know, the boundaries and more of that kind of mental sphere and and being safe in that way as well. Awesome. Thank you. And that was really helpful. In your book, you cover 10 factors that promote security in a yoga class. And I think it'd be really useful to explore those. The first one is predictability. How can we bring predictability into our yoga classes and how that does, does that help create safety? Predictability is a big one. Um, a lot of teachers think or feel some kind of pressure to create wildly new sequences every week. It's definitely not something that's necessary or really promoted in a trauma-sensitive setting. So starting and finishing, definitely like pretty much the same. 
But even just the way that the class flows step by step, even doing mainly the same sequence each week, you can always change it up by adding like one little change or expanding on something that you've done. But working with the same basic skeleton of a sequence is highly recommended. And then folks don't have to worry about if you're going to throw something at them or if you're going to ask them to do something that they're not comfortable doing or they just don't know. The next one is clarity of expectations. So in order to feel safe in the space, I have to know like what's wanted from me here. You know, do I have to participate in everything? What, you know, especially if it's my first time just in the yoga room, you know, how, what is the culture of the space here? Just understanding what's allowed in that space. If you can imagine, it can be one of us going into a religious space that we've never been to or a new country. You know, it's it's often unclear. Do I have to take my shoes off? Can I keep my shoes on? Things like that. So the more that you can tell me what's going to happen what and what's expected of me, the more that I can relax into, you know, what this hour, hour and a half is going to be like. And then the next one is boundaries. Boundaries can be kind of hard to feel for trauma survivors because they often feel disconnected from their bodies or not living really their lives. So for the yoga teacher to really help their student to recognize the student's boundaries by even verbalizing when you see one come up, not trying to push the student past that. So it's not about necessarily testing them to go further in something or push harder, but actually about honoring Like, it looks like your body wants to stop there. That's a boundary. And then consistency. Consistency refers more to how we show up. It's good and okay to be real in the sense that, you know, no one wants a robot like showing up to class, not yet, (laughs) in an AI robot teaching class. And humans are, we're different from moment to moment and day to day. And it's not the place for us to let all our stuff out. So I think, you know, keeping our emotions kind of consistent, <laughs> showing up within you, you know, a range, but the practitioners know that they can expect like a warm, open presence in the room. And they don't have to be worried about like, are you are you having a strict tough day? Or this day you're acting wildly silly, you know, being being balanced. Yeah. It seems like that has some relationship to boundaries as well, where the teacher having self-boundaries, models boundaries for their students and helps them feel safe as well. Very well said. Absolutely. Number five is articulated options. Yeah. So we want to give different options for you know any posture that we're suggesting. And those are all presented equally. So there's no prize for choosing one option over the other. You'll notice it doesn't say like, modifications. It's not a modification. There's just different options that are present and they're all presented equally. Otherwise, they're not really options. So if we feel that one is wanted over the other, then that kind of skews what what we might do. Sometimes, you know, a teacher will just say, or do child's pose or do something else. And that's not really giving people options to remain in the class, remain in posture if the thing that we taught what maybe isn't right for them. Um, and there's always an option to visualize the posture. We know that there's a lot of benefits that the the cells actually react to our visualizing being in the shape. So that can always be one of your options. 
I find that it's really important when offering options in classes to share some background about why you're doing this particular practice and why a student might choose one option or another. Because even though it might be clear to us as the teacher why, yeah, you should definitely choose that option. But that's not clear to our students. Our students are often like, ah, you just gave me three options and I don't know which one to choose. Yeah, that that's very true. Um, sometimes they don't know what to choose. And I think but I would frame it more that so choose one and see what that experience is in your body and then you can, you know, I'll always say something like you can make another choice. You can come out at any time. And if that one didn't feel right, try another one or see what feels different between them. So we're treating the trauma sensitive practice as kind of an experiment. Like what can we just learn in each shape? Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. And that kind of comes down to the next factor, which is freedom. Agency is pretty much the core healing factor for trauma survivors because agency is the main thing that's taken away in a trauma. So really having freedom to come in and out of posture, to leave the room, to express oneself without feeling that there'll be any recriminations for being honest, like something's not working. And again, to feel free, it's more than just saying, you know, you're free to do whatever you want or you're, you know... Freedom happens when it's clear, you know, when it's really, really clear that there are options, when it's really, really clear and not just stated one time that that I can leave and come back if I need to. And when the statements are followed through by my actions and also like energy around it. What about this next one, contribution? So there's always some, some space for the practitioner to get involved, to share an idea, to try something their way, to contribute to the forming of this space relationship and process and class together. So they're really a part of it. Uh, it's not a top-down, I'm teaching you, but they are uh, their experiment and experience um, is what goes into like what we do next. So the teacher is not coming into class like this is my space. I own it. I'm going to decide what we do here. But instead, the teacher's like, okay, I'm going to hold this space open for you to experiment. And I'm going to follow your lead and see what happens and be a little bit flexible there. Yeah, it's a balance, right? Because there's that structure that folks want and need for like, okay, what's going to happen there? And then finding that freedom within that structure to be in the moment and to incorporate what's really happening. Right. Because different students are going to have such different needs and and different expectations too, right? Some students walk in and they really want you to just direct every step and other students are going to be really into contributing and have a lot to say and share. Yeah, that's true. Uh, A lot of our classes, we have two teachers because this does get, you know, a little bit of a balancing act. (laughs) Uh, and especially if you're really promoting a lot of choice and, you know, some people on a mat, some people on a chair, some people using a wall, uh, you could get very creative. It's nice to have two teachers that way for sure. So that one, one teacher is sort of continuing the flow and having a through line for the class who wants to follow a through line and the other teacher is more available to kind of go where somebody needs to go with them. Yeah. Exactly. 
The next factor for promoting security, I think you touched on a bit, but in case you want to expand on it, is the opportunity to opt out or leave. It, it's important to have that kind of separated out because the the ability to leave or to say, I don't want to do this, um, again, it goes to agency. It's very, very important. And it's more than just, I was, I was taking a fitness class this morning and the teacher said, when we finish this exercise, the time's going to be over. Those who have to leave, leave. Because that's a, also a really big thing that we talk about is a lot of teachers, yoga teachers feel like, oh, I gave them 10 extra minutes. That can actually really be triggering for some people. It feels like I'm being like held here. Um, not to mention, you know, you have to pick up your kid or whatever. Um, and you feel weird to leave, you know, if it's not like closed or sometimes, you know, they don't, they really don't like it when you leave. When the teacher really sets it up that way and you actually see that lots of students are making different choices, it helps to really establish that this is a place which really celebrates all choices. And that's something that I'll say a lot in class, like, good on you. Like, you know, you like your body said no, you know, and you listen to it. Awesome. Or like, it's just great that everyone is doing something different today. I can see that you're all listening to your unique messages from your body. Yeah, it's a tough one because, you know, in a group environment, it's hard to listen to the messages from your body. It's much more tempting to follow along with the group energy and the group dynamic. I've been teaching for almost 20 years, and I still find that it depends on the safety that the teacher sets up in the environment and my relationship to it of how comfortable I am to do my own thing. Even after this length of time, there are definitely situations where I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do what everybody else does, even though it doesn't feel right for me because I don't want to offend the teacher or I don't want to stand out in some way. So, you know, I appreciate you calling this out and saying, hey, we need to say this often and we need to demonstrate it because it's hard. Yes. Just saying it once is not going to result in people feeling free to really do something else. Yes. Because we're we're programmed from very young age to please. You know, we want to please our caregivers. We want to please our teachers. And we fall into those roles when we enter these group settings. And it takes a lot of uh, working on that dynamic. Um, and that's main skill that I teach yoga teachers to really get your students to reveal to you like what's going on for them. And when they start to do that, you see that you're doing your job. And then you also see that it's wildly rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah. And that sort of feeds into the next one, which is the experience of acceptance, which is obviously very important for feeling free to opt out or leave. Can you share some ways that you help students experience acceptance in your classes? That space of honoring people where they are, that's the healing. And so that's the work one does on their own as a space holder, on their own stuff before they come in, while it's not trying to fix anyone. It's what I'm talking about when I say that the trauma response is brilliant. And we don't really know what people, we don't know what people go home to. And so it's not for us to say it's time to, to get rid of that response. All the ways that, that we just hold what's there and that People don't feel that you're trying to fix them or trying to initiate a quote-unquote breakthrough. That doesn't need to happen at all. 
It's it's really about the holding what is, and it comes through our mainly through our energy of how we respond to our students, and you know the ways that we don't adjust, uh, correct, or praise. Um, that's a big one. The ways that we don't praise one posture or one way of being in this space because that singles out that that's what we want or that's what's good, and the other stuff isn't. So the the work that we do on ourselves, on how we define yoga, on how we understand people's process, that's all in our energy when we enter this space. It sounds like a lot of it starts with our own self-acceptance. And from that place, it's easier to hold the space of acceptance for others. Well, that's very well said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, research to show that the things we push away in ourselves and reject in ourselves. Um, you know, we're first to call out in others. So I think definitely that's that's true. Yeah. And the last one is receiving understanding. Yeah, I think uh, like anticipating folks' needs so they can feel seen in advance. So yes, we can attend to when things come up, but it's even more wonderful, isn't it? When you come into a space and someone's thought of you already, like what you might need and anticipated that. There's small ways that we do this, like setting up a mat and a chair for everyone, right? It's also a way of not singling anyone out. But I'm also thinking about, I want you to feel open to change your mind. So how can I set up the atmosphere so that there's no limitation or there are fewer limitations. So if I'm practicing the chair, then I'm like, you know, maybe I could sit down, but I didn't get a mat, you know, then I might not do it. Or the opposite, if I'm on the mat, I'm like, you know, this would have been better as a chair practice today, but I don't have the chair. I might feel embarrassed to go ask for it. So there's just all these little things that we can do that can really show that we care and that we're anticipating folks' needs in advance. I think it's such a beautiful contemplation to ask ourselves the questions of how do we bring these things into our classes and where have we maybe had some gaps. I'm curious if you could wave a magic wand and influence yoga teacher trainings around the world, what is one idea or one concept that you would place at the center of yoga teacher trainings? Well, I mean, I really, really think that every yoga teacher training should have a unit on trauma and trauma sensitivity because we know, I guess the main thing I would say that we do know is that there is trauma in every single shared space. So there's someone that has been through a traumatic event or is actively going through a trauma response. And there's no way to know that from looking at someone. You just don't know who's in your space. And I, I see that a lot of the teachers coming through the yoga teacher trainings, certainly the ones that are coming to me, are just not prepared for that. And the first thing is to recognize that it's in every space and then to get some education on at least the basics of making the room uh, a safer space because it's not that you know everyone that's going through a trauma just goes to this trauma sensitive class and you know that they're, they're just in one space and labeled we're we're together with each other and you don't have to do every single recommendation you know that I put forth in the book or that anyone puts forth you know these are suggestions but I believe that if one or two are implemented just that alone is a great step forward 
And if listeners want to find out more about you and your work and buy your book, where should they go? Oh, thank you. LaraLand.us, just like it sounds, L-A-R-A-L-A-N-D.us. My book's on there. Also have a podcast, Beyond Trauma, my trainings and links to my nonprofit, Three and a Half Acres Yoga, and uh, pretty active on the Instagram at LaraLand Yoga as well. Thank you for sharing a bit of your wisdom and your perspective on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is part of a series with authors of recently published yoga books. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the series by looking above or below this episode in your podcast player. Thank you.